Welcome to the Kitchen Sink Meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Starting in July 2021, the meeting will be hybrid. You will still be able to attend the meeting via Zoom. Please go to the Los Angeles Intergroup's webpage at oalaig.org for login information. And now, our speaker. Like I said, I'm Allison. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, on June 17th, 1989, I walked into this meeting and got abstinent. Um, so that means I have 32 years and just a little bit more than two months of solid back-to-back abstinence. Um, that is not, though, um, my first abstinence date. I actually came into the program in May of 1985. And, um, yeah, I really want to thank Jack for asking my sponsor, April, to lead today, who couldn't do it, who then reached out to me. Um, I was thinking last night, by the way, I have a huge, huge, huge favor to ask. So I'm looking at a Zoom screen, and I can see a few faces, but then I see a lot of no faces, and it's it's hard. Um, it's, like, so much easier if people actually show their faces because um, it's kind of depressing to talk. You guys rock to, tr- to talk to, like, black boxes or pictures. Um because it's it's, ner- it's a nerve-wracking thing to talk, right? It's um, a little – I hold this meeting in such high esteem because I am so incredibly grateful for 32 years of abstinence. And um, and the timing of speaking to you guys today could not be more perfect. I have such terrifying – such a huge terrifying thing going on in my life. Um, and I usually, you know, like the night before I'll speak, I'll sort of joke, oh, I put myself – to sleep, you know, thinking about my talk today. But I actually kept myself awake last night thinking about my talk today because it was such a perfect God shot for me to remember how far I have come, you know, how unbelievable, how this life that I am living is nothing compared to the life I was living when I was out there binging my brains out. And I've got this life that is beyond my wildest dreams, and it is technicolor, and it's full, and it's vibrant, and sometimes it's terrifying. Um, because it is life on life's terms. And, um, you know, I, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on my food log, but, um, I've, I've been a compulsive overeater my entire life. I have one memory of a child of pushing food away. Otherwise, I have always been obsessed with food. And, um, I, um, food for better or worse, and my husband is a normie. It, this doesn't do this for him, but food for some reason, gives me the ability when I am using it as a, as a crutch to go out there and do life on life's terms. I am a hardcore binge eater and I am a sugar addict to my core. There is no way that I can take a bite of any dessert and then have the illusion that I can eat it moderately. I am capable of eating 6,000 calories a day. I was, um, a really chubby, chunky, neither here nor there, boring, unattractive kid. There was nothing, nothing remotely interesting about me as a kid. At least that's my perceptions of it. My parents might differ, but I don't think they would. Um, and there really just wasn't, I was teased mercilessly as a kid. Um, my dad was raising me. I didn't know how to take showers or brush my hair or wash my clothes. I just, I, I, you know, I was just this feral thing and, and, and unattractive. And at 15, I went on a diet. And like nine months later, I was in New York City modeling. And my very first job was the cover of um, Seventeen magazine. And 
but my eating disorder was still very much there and alive and well. And what's interesting to me about all that is so much of my eating disorder is about my perceptions of the world and how I look at the world. And um, I, when I was modeling, I just thought for sure they were wrong, that they'd made some huge, enormous mistake, that they were going to wake up one day and realize, oh, she's not that cute. Send her home. And they didn't. And instead, I got, like, these modeling jobs. Like I said, I got the cover 17. It was like, but it didn't matter what was happening on the outside. The inside just kept screaming at me. So much of my eating disorder was about my screaming, screaming head that was constantly critical of me, you know, relentless. I, I have, like, almost no memories of being, like, good girl, Allison. You know, I have one where I got, like, a really great test score in chemistry in my junior year of high school. You know, I... I just was constantly hard on myself. I was constantly afraid navigating this world. You know, that whole concept of some people were given a handbook, they came out of the womb, and some were not. I was not. You know, I also just need to mention this. I know it doesn't want us to mention other 12-step programs, but um, I also, at the same time I had this raging eating disorder, I also had alcoholism and an addiction to pot. And and what happened... Um, I ate my way out of my modeling career. There was no way I could keep it. They needed me to be between 108 and 112 pounds. And as soon as, and I'm five foot eight, and as soon as I got to be more than 112, um, no one would hire me. Like it just ground to a halt. And so I took up, um, I just benched my brands out. I, I, I was gaining about a pound, of, pound a day towards the end of my modeling career. And the highest weight I ever remember was about 100 and 75 pounds, maybe 179 before I had the common sense to not get on the scale anymore. Um, you know, I just, I like, oh, that's just too high of a number. And, you know, but I, I still kept binging my brains out. And, um, you know, I, um, I, food just helped me navigate life. It just did something for me. And I don't know why, you know? And so what happened was I was, um, depressed and unhappy. And I happened to meet this woman who turned me on to this therapist. Um, her name was Patricia Vidiello. And I mentioned her name and her full name because I really want Patricia. I want someone who knows Patricia someday to reach out to her and to tell her to find me because I want to tell Patricia, you changed a life. You saved a life, you changed a life, you changed the trajectory of my life. Because at 21 years old, when I came stumbling in these programs, she was in these programs. She was in both AA and OA, and she basically was like, I think you have alcoholism and an eating disorder. And I don't know why, but I was willing to come, and I was willing to check myself in. And there was nothing in my past that showed me as having any kind of willingness. I had dropped out of college. I had dropped out of high school. I was going nowhere fast. I was cocktail waitressing. Um, but for some reason, I was willing to check myself into this gig. And I went um, uh, I went into an, a treatment program for alcoholism, but, um, but I also checked myself into OA at the same time. And um, I just want to say about that, and then I'll just stick to 100% OA, is that when my alcoholism was really working for me, my eating disorder was in, in check. And when my eating disorder was really working for me, my alcoholism was in check. 
So I spent my life, you know, I started, you know, binging my brains out from the earliest ages and then doing other stuff also very early ages. By the time I got here, you know, I was just sort of balancing both of them back and forth and back and forth until by the time I rolled in here, I wasn't balancing anything. You know, I was just a, 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 a crappy show, you know, um, trying not to cuss, you know. And so when I um, started checking myself into OA, I was going to this um, meeting in Beverly Hills called OA for AA, and they had this thing, which the guys have here, which I think is so important. They asked if you were in your first 30 days of abstinence. And I was coming to OA for months as a, oh, Tamika, you're a little baby. Oh, my gosh. I was coming to OA for months, and um, and I kept losing. I, I needed to get off. I needed to stop binge. I needed to get off sugar badly. I was just this hardcore sugar addict. And and I would get, like, a week off of sugar, and then I would binge on it again. And I would get two weeks off of sugar, and I would binge again. And I would keep honestly raising my hand. That is the important thing. Right. I think my eating disorder is so secretive, but I would keep honestly raising my hand as being in less than 30 days. And that was key because I remember I got 28 days and I was so excited. I was about to get that 30 days and not have to raise my hand anymore. And I ate sugar again and I was mortified. And I'll tell you that mortification was fantastic. Right. Because that drove me to white knuckle that next 30 days. And I, um, October 24th, 1985, I was, I stopped eating sugar and October 31st, and it was hard, right? It was really hard. It was this white knuckling, not eating it. And October 31st, Halloween, I got my favorite candy to hand out to the kids and I had a choice to eat it or not eat it. And I was like, okay, God. I am not going to eat this candy. And I just, I mean, common sense would dictate throw the stupid stuff out, but I didn't. And I didn't eat it. And from that day to now, I have not had the desire to eat sugar in any obvious dessert forms. My abstinence is I eat pretty much three meals a day, usually fruit in between, between lunch and dinner. Um, and um, I don't eat sugar in any obvious dessert forms. Um, I don't eat any, like, dessert from I don't eat cornbread because that takes, like, cake to me, you know. Um, I, ketchup I don't worry about, but I don't usually eat ketchup anymore. Um, you know, it didn't set off that phenomenon of cornbread. And everybody gets to have, if you're new here, everybody gets to have their own abstinence. I love that. You get to pick what works for you. This is what works for me and has held me in good stead. And I do not binge under any circumstances. I don't go by a full bag of chips and eat the whole bag of chips. And I haven't done both of those things in 32 years. Or, um, but I don't count myself abstinence from sugar since um, October 24th, 1985, um, because I um, was at UCLA. I went back to college and I was at UCLA, and they had these bazooka bubble gums that, that had a, um, a thing on them that said, you will marry soon. And so... I kept eating bazooka bubblegum for a couple of weeks. So I, I, I consider my abstinence um, June 17th, 1989. And what happened after 1985 is I came to OA for two and a half years. I kept binging. I basically had three binges a day, not to last longer than an hour and a length, hour and a half in length. And so, um, and at two and a half years, I left OA. And they say don't leave OA, but I kind of needed to because I needed to go try all the other things out there, Weight Watchers how, you know, all this other stuff. 
And at um, four years, I came back. And um, so in 1989, I came back. And they asked if I was in my first, second, or third OA meeting. Like, they just asked anybody, are you in your first, second, or third OA meeting? And even though I'd been to over 100 meetings, I said, I raised my hand as yes. I was at my first, second, or third OA meeting because I needed to come back in like I knew nothing. It was so important to know nothing, to be teachable. And um, what happened is um came here, kitchen sink meeting, and I didn't know what OA was going to do for me. All I know is I'd run out all my options, and I was sober in AA for four years, but my life was flat and gray and monotone and had no joy in it. That whole happy, joyous, and free thing they talk about in program, nada, because I was binging. I wasn't eating sugar, but I was binging, and I was just, and I thought, damn it, I don't want to be working my ass off so hard over here and not get the good stuff. And I didn't know, because of my previous experience in OA, I didn't know if OA was really going to help me, but I had zero other options. And so I checked myself in, here on a Saturday, Serenity Sunday on Sunday, I got the sponsor um, that I got named Krishana, who was amazing, and she changed my life. She put me through some step work. She put me through some book work, and she had me take actions that I'd never taken before. And I'm here to tell you what OA has done for me. So I am somebody, my eating disorder is that if the thought to eat is in my head, I act on that is my act when I'm in my active unrecovery eating disorder. I have zero ability to stop putting in my mind. I have zero ability to stop hurting myself with food. But I came in here and slowly but surely stopped hurting myself with food. And I stopped hating myself. And I stopped thinking I was a piece of crap. Like, I didn't know that that's what OA was going to do for me. I didn't know that OA was going to give me this ability to do life on life's terms without turning to food to cope with that life on life's terms. Um, it was wild. And I didn't know that God was going to take away that desire to binge and eat sugar so purely, right? Like my eating disorder is a very big voice in my head, and my eating disorder would be like, it's never going to change, whatever it is, right? Eat now, die now, whatever it is. And, you know, because I um, do this thing, you know, I sponsor, I have a sponsor, I work the steps, I go to meetings regularly. I'm a fixture at my noon Boulder meeting, you know, on Tuesdays. I'm the secretary of it. I'm a fixture at most of my meetings, you know, which means that I put my meetings into my calendar first and then I plan my life around them because, and it's not very much to ask, right? My higher power does not ask that much of me to, and then I get this good stuff. The problem is, is that this disease is tricky. So the disease, my disease actually doesn't really want me to feel very good. My disease is actually more comfortable in sort of feeling monotone. You know, I sum it up like this. If I'm at like, seven meetings a week, which is where I'm at right now because I need it. Um, I'm actually pretty good. I own with the universe. I feel like I'm giving in, intuitive ways to cope with life on life's terms. You know, um, you know, five to seven meetings a week. I'm like, I've got this. That's your five minutes. Thank you. 
when I'm at three or four meetings a week, I'm fine. I'm fine. Little tight job, but I'm fine. When I'm at one, two meetings a week, I'm a bitch. The world is not doing it right. I'm mad at everybody. You know, and I'm just like hyper controlling and intense. Like I am untenable, my poor family. You know, and so what is it about my disease that's like, yeah, we can get away with it. You don't have to go today. Yeah, skip it. You know, um, it's like, no. And so I'm very much at this mode right now where I'm trying to get to seven because not only do I need all I can, but I actually kind of like feeling good. I really like that happy, joyous, and free thing. Um, what is going on right now is, um, we are bringing my daughter on Tuesday. We adopted our kids. Um, my mom, let's see, I'll just back up real quick because I'm in a couple minutes. And actually, I realize you guys will be answering me, asking me questions, so I'll have more time to talk. But my mom died at 59 years old. Four days later, I had a miscarriage. I went on to have a couple more miscarriages. Um, and we wound up adopting our kids from India who are amazing. And my daughter is 18 now and she's going to college on Tuesday and we are scared to death. We are not, people are like, oh, are you so excited? You know, or are you so sad? It's like, we're terrified. We are terrified. We are nails on a chalkboard terrified. We are really afraid she does not have the psychological tools um, to deal with this. And we are scared to death that we're doing it. Um, but I am, um, there are times in my life where things come up that are so big in absence where I can't say, I trust God, right? Like, that's just not the reality. Oh, I trust God with my child. I am terrified for my child. But I am going to act as if I trust God, right? There's a big distinction there. I am going to proceed as if God has this handle, even though I am scared to death. And I am reaching out to my higher power. Um, I get on my knees. I am not religious. I wasn't raised in any kind of religion, but getting on my knees seems to work for me because it, I'm such a hyper person, as you can tell by how fast I talk, that um, for me to take the action of stopping and getting down where I can't move, where I actually have to kind of say hello, um, is important for me, right? My, my higher power doesn't care how or when I pray, where I pray, my higher power, you know, and my power has got me whether I'm praying or not, you know. Um, but praying for me is what I do um, to hopefully give me the ability to cope with life on life's terms. That is all it comes down to. You know, I've got this beautiful, enormous, huge life. I've got this amazing husband. You know, for years when I spoke in OA, every single time, I remember once I spoke, so every time I would speak, I would talk about wanting to be a wife and a mom, and I wasn't even dating, right? I just, it was, it was ad nauseum, and I'll never forget, I spoke at the birthday party one year, and I had met my husband, and two women after, it was actually really hurt, but two women afterward, you know, and I talked about meeting my husband, two women afterwards came up to me, and they're like, oh, God, you used to talk so much about wanting to be a wife and a mom, it was really, ugh. Like, that's how I perceived it. Whether that's how they said it or not, God knows. But that's how I perceived it. Oh, you know, um, but I really was. And I've got this this husband, and we've been married for 20 years. And, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen, you know. And um, we live in Colorado, even though I desperately miss Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, um, I don't know what God's plan is. But I need... But I have been here long enough, at 32 years, being all in in this program, to know that there 
is a plan. My eating disorder never perceives the plan in a positive way at first, sometimes even at last. My eating disorder has an inability to look ahead and be like, going to be fine. God's got Karina. God's got Karina at college. God's going to take great care of Karina. She's going to be fantastic. Never, never. That is not where I go, ever. It's like, what if she dies? Right? That's an eating disorder. That's an eating disorder. That is why I still come and do this thing 32 years later. Because most of the time, my life is copacetic and great. And there are times when it is not. And I need to be, as, as a girl, my friend KG says, I need to come all the way in and sit all the way down. That's your time. That is it. I can be done. And I know you guys are going to ask me questions. And it's just an honor being here with you guys today. Thank you. Okay. I swear. Um, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own, absolutely my own, and not those of Rodriguez Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you asked a question last week, please wait until the first three questions have been asked before um, raising your hand. And if you have a question or in person, um, raise your hand. If you're on Zoom, type your question in the chat. And tech hosts will read it out to the group and speaker. We will alternate between in-person and online questions. The speaker will repeat the question before answering. Okay. Sounds like a lot, but I will do my best. Okay. Fire away. Any questions? I didn't receive any questions in the chat, so if anyone in the live meeting would like to pose a question, go for it. No one has their hand raised. Oh, wait, yeah, we do have one. Go ahead, Alex. Thank you for your share, Alison. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your uh, daily spiritual practice you have? Sure. Can you hear that? Yep, I do. Can I talk about my daily spiritual practice? Um, yeah, I um, I get on my no matter what, I get on my knees in the morning, and I swear I got 30 seconds less sometimes, sometimes longer, depending on what's going on. And I get on my knees at night. Um, and, uh, again, not very long. And I lay down for 30 minutes every day. Um, because again, like I said before, I'm so hyper that I feel like it's important for me to, um, slow down, um, for a little bit, just to say hello. I also, depending on what's going on, I try to, um, check in with my higher power just throughout the day. If something is going on, it is amazing to me how I can be going through something enormous. Um, like yesterday we had something enormous with my daughter and completely forget to check in with God until it's sort of like calmed down. Like you would think, oh, in 32 years, that would be my first, hey, God, can you help me with this? No. Sometimes it's way after the fact. And like I said, I don't think my higher power cares. I also, when I'm working um, step six and seven, I find it's really important if I'm working on a particular character defect to um, shout out up to God about 15 or 20 times a day, that particular character defect. For example, I'm working on, Control, judgment, and criticism of my children, but also sort of in general. And so I try to, you know, 10, 15 times a day just say, can you please remove control, judgment, and criticism? And that's it. That's like the extent of it. And it works. It really works. Hope that helps. 
All right, we have a question in the chat. During the time that you were on and off your abstinence, lasting only for a few days, did you have to deal with shame, and how did you get over it? Oh, shame. Oh, you know what I tell everybody I sponsor? Shame is a useless emotion. Like, useless. Even in recovery, I have never accomplished anything by shaming myself. I feel like that is so much of my disease. Um, because I just, so much of my disease is about beating myself up. And what is that juxtaposition where I beat myself up with my head and then I beat myself up with food? Like, what's that about? And so I felt like, like even in, so when I was, you know, newly absent, it, yeah, it was the shame of having to raise my hand, but it was really important to keep raising it. But it was also, um, the, just the desire, like it just reminded me, like, I want this so badly. I want off of sugar and abstinence so badly that I will risk being quote unquote ashamed. But really what I was being when I raised my hand in my first 30 days of being in my first 30 days was honest because a lot of my eating disorder is about dishonesty, right? And hiding. And so it was really important to be honest, but man, I'll tell you that one of the greatest gifts of abstinence is not hating myself anymore and not beating myself up. And there are definitely things I've done in shame. And I'm sorry, I'll answer this real quickly. There's only been one time in 32 years where I've thought about would sugar fix it? And it was not that long ago. It was back in February. I had just shamed my daughter like in a horrible way, horrible way in Palm Springs on a trip we were on. And I had such regret and so much shame and just hated myself so much because of what I had said to her. I was walking around Palm Springs by myself and I was trying to figure out what would help that shame go on away. And I asked myself the question, would sugar do it? And a very clear answer from my higher power came, no, sugar would not solve this. And I do have shame for like saying the things I said to her and I do have regret, but I also could not stay in that shame. I needed to move forward and all that matters that I changed my actions. There we go. Thanks. Good question. Please. Okay. Kitchen sink room. Hey, I'm about to say for service. Um, you talked about your modeling career and your low self-esteem during that time. Talk about what your journey with body image was like. What my journey with the I missed the last part. Body, like challenges. Oh, I oh fabulous. What my journey with body was like. I am so glad you brought that up. Um, there, this is a fun format. Um, body image is huge. I in my recovery, my body image is none of my business. Um, boy, I could talk on this for 30 minutes, but I won't. Um, you know, I, I'm the type of compulsive overeater that there is no weight that is ever the right weight. Um, it doesn't matter how thin I get, it is never enough. That whole concept of goal weight, like, ooh, that's really loaded for me because I have never met a goal weight that I couldn't find a new goal weight. And I, um, I tried an experiment a couple of years ago of counting calories because I felt like I was eating just a little bit too much. I'm older now. I'm postmenopause. My metabolism slowed down. I was eating just a little bit too much. And 
And, um, and so I tried counting calories and lo and behold, I lost weight. Um, and all that did for me was make me a lot more self-conscious about my body. I wore tighter clothes. Um, I wanted to go buy a bunch of new clothes and I suddenly was very, very, very hyper-conscious of what food was I eating, you know, and it wasn't my abstinence is I can take my abstinence anywhere in the world. I can go to any restaurant. I can go to any country. Um, you know, it's that comfortable with food. I don't have um, a lot of restrictions. And when I was counting calories, suddenly I was just like very hyper-focused on, you know, how many calories does this have in it? And what about that? And I wasn't enjoying my food as much. Um, but I was, what was really awful was that I was much more conscious of my body and I was looking in a lot more mirrors and I cared a lot more about how I came across like that thing early on in abstinence and even later on in abstinence of if I look okay on the outside, you won't question how I am on the inside. Very bad for this eating disorder. Very bad for my head. And so, yeah, even when I was 108 pounds, it was not enough, right? And so um, my, I, I very much hold that because my body is my, what my body looks like is none of my business. If I gain a little bit of weight in abstinence, I wear looser clothes. You know, I just, I, I don't worry about it. Um, so I hope that helps. I could really go on and on about that. Dean. All right. Thanks, Allison. So the next question that we have in the chat is, could you please um, talk about service? Is it important in your uh, in your family and in your OA community? And uh, Dean, if you have a question, you can just send it to me, and I'll and I'll read it off to Allison. Thanks. Cool. Um, service is huge. Um, I feel like okay. I I'm secretary of my meeting on Tuesdays, um, and I'm there every Tuesday. I've actually been and, and I've been a service at that meeting for forever. I've always had commitments in OA. Constantly, I have never not had commitments. Um, I, I sponsor people. I'm available to sponsor. In fact, I was just thinking today, I sponsor somebody, and I'm like, she's got a year of abstinence. It's time she starts sponsoring people. I feel like there's always a dearth of sponsors in a way, and if if I have abstinence, it is my job to give it back. Um, you know, I basically, you know, if I'm asked to speak, like my sponsor sent this to me yesterday, can can you do this? I'm like, of course. You know, I. Um, I get out of my comfort level. I have always, always been of service. I feel like it's just a huge component of my recovery. Um, it's just, I can't just keep taking. I'm a, my, my eating disorder is I'm a natural taker. I like to get, and it is really important for me to give. Thank you. Back to the room. What's your concept of your higher power, and how did you... Come to it and has it changed throughout the year? Oh, that's awesome. Um, higher power. I uh, was raised uh, an atheist. I believe I came into this program sort of semi-agnostic. Um, I, you know, I, um, makes me kind of emotional, this thing with the higher power. You know, it's, um, it's been a journey. You know, I, um, I really, like I said, you know, with my higher power and, and working this program, like I didn't know what program was going to do for me, but I was willing to show up and look alert. And 
then over time, I would just start seeing signs that my higher power was here. Um, and I think probably the most transformative moment with my higher power was when my mom, I mentioned, died at 59, and four days later, I had a miscarriage. I was laying on the floor after that miscarriage um, by myself in my house, and I couldn't get up. And I did not trust God. I suddenly was terrified of God. That felt especially cruel. My husband and I had been trying so hard. It was an in vitro thing. So we've been trying really hard to have a baby. And I just felt like, F you, God, I do not trust you. Why in the world did you have this happen to me? And this voice came to me and the voice, or it was this thought that I, that I call kind of a voice, but the thought was, I want to see what happens. And the reason why that's so important is because at that point I was 14, yeah, I don't know, 12, 13 years absent, I can't remember. And I'd had so many things happen in my life where, again, where when I project ahead, I never see good, right, even in recovery. And I had so many times where, where I'd seen, oh, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Good did happen or it turned out okay. And so in that moment after that miscarriage, I couldn't see how I just felt like God was cruel. And because I had that thought of, I want to see what happens. I got off of the floor and I went forward. And then we got to adopt my beautiful daughter who I'm sending off to school and, and my incredible son who's a senior this year. And it's your and five minutes morning. Okay, thank you. I, I've seen that over and over and over again. And um, and so, like I said, I don't always project ahead and see that it's going to be okay, but I just have to have faith. Like I, my, my faith in my higher power has gotten richer and deeper. And my husband jokes that I'm the most Christian-like non-Christian he knows, you know, I, I, he because I just, I practice these things principles because I have deep underlying faith that, okay, here we go. Here's what it boils down to. I don't believe that because I'm in program and I have a higher power that nothing bad is going to happen. What I believe is that I will be given what I need to cope with what is happening. I will be given the tools that I need to do life on life's terms and that I will be okay. I will be okay. My father just passed away six weeks ago. My father was my best friend. And I thought, that when he died, if anyone had asked me up until three months ago, even two months ago, that when your father dies, how will you feel? I would have said, I will be curled up in a fetal position, in bed, unable to move, and, you know, basically depressed for months. I just knew that's how I was going to feel. And when my dad died, that's not how I felt. I have been able to do life surprisingly well and surprisingly happy and I feel like he's watching out for me and I feel like God has given me exactly what I need so that's my higher power and that is how it's evolved and it's gotten stronger and stronger and what I wish it is it was it wasn't always being tested damn it I wish I could come in here and get 32 years of abstinence and be like I got this thing and I don't Crap keeps happening, not all the time, but sometimes, and I still have to turn to that higher power, and I'm being taken of. That's what my higher power is. Thanks. All right, Allison, next question is, how do you cope with anxiety? And also, if at the end of your um, pitch, if you can share your phone number. 
as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, I put my phone number in the chat. Um, oh, and by the way, I'm so sorry. I have to leave right after meeting. My husband is in his first tennis match of his senior season at school, and um, it starts at 11, which is my time, 11, your 10 o'clock or 10. Um, uh, okay, I'm sorry. I just lost. Nancy, what did you say that was the question? Yeah. How do you cope with anxiety? Oh, okay. That's a big one. I've had some panic attacks recently. Holy crap. Like, what's this? And and really, it was um, mostly when my dad was dying, you know, living at my house and dying. Um, they were big, these panic attacks, like, like wanting to hurt myself. And I don't want to hurt myself usually. I don't want to kill myself anymore, but... Boy, I wanted to like run my fist into a wall. I wanted to cut on myself. It's like, what is this? Um, I gave myself permission to have the attack. I started talking to God immediately in it. God help me. God help me. God help me. God help me. Because it was big, like screaming, wailing, you know, like honestly, like psych services should have come. They didn't last for very long. They lasted like anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 minutes. But I had just the slight, slight presence of mind in each of them. And it happened like three or four times to, um, to, to just sort of tap into a higher power. And I, since I'd gotten through the first one, I knew the second, I, there's this little glimmer of hope that the second one might end like the first one. But as I'm in it, I was terrified that it wasn't going to end, right? Like, I really thought my mind was breaking. And um, and I got through, and I got to the other side. I did pick up my meetings. I really, that that is one of the reasons behind the seven meetings a week. I cannot afford to mess with the quality of my program. I can't afford those kinds of panic attacks. Um, they were really scary. I don't, I haven't had one in a few weeks. I'm doing fine. Um but boy, when you're in it, it it's it's crap. But I have gotten through. Looks like that's, that's it. Good times. Love it. All right. Thank you so much, everybody.